Tom, so this question I had uh, written down a couple of sessions ago, and it's been carried over, but uh, the question is this. During a recent OBE, I attempted to interact with my guides. My interpretation of the being that arrived was a very nervous and jittery man that was fed up and packing his bags to leave. On another occasion, I seemingly made contact with the guide and asked if they could provide me with some assistance. They replied that yes, they could, but they were not very good at it. It seems that sometimes guidance is very solid and definitive, as if it were bubbled up directly from the LCS. At other times, however, it seems that the given guide is perhaps another being as it, that is experiencing a learning opportunity of their own. Are we budding individual units of consciousness, sometimes the guinea pigs, for the lessons and tests of more learned beings? Or is this all just another ingenious way for the LCS to be evasive and encourage us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? Well, the short answer is probably all of the above. Let me make some comments on it. Uh, when you had your, when you had this guy that uh, said he was fed up and packing his bags, getting <laughs> to leave, and then the other one that said, yeah, he could help you, but he wasn't very good at it yet. Uh, my guess is the message to you is you don't need the help you're looking for that you're perfectly capable to do it on your own and um, what you need is a little more confidence more than you need a guide, that that would be the message from those two. Now, that being the case, um, the question are, you know, are we sometimes the guinea pigs for the lessons and tests of more learned beings? Well, yes, of course, and not necessarily even more learned beings. Uh, uh, we are the you know, everything, every entity, every IUOC, us and our guides are learning and growing and have challenges and have to make good decisions. And, you know, so that's that's the case, whether it's us or whether it's our guide or, or even if it's the larger consciousness system itself. You know, everything is learning and growing and evolving. So, yes, uh, sometimes guides can be... Um, of poor quality, you know, not very helpful, not really paying attention, um, and not very helpful at all. And other times they can be super, you know, just really uh, have just what you need when you need it. But I'd say the first, those two that you've got probably are telling you you need more confidence than you need guides, that uh, you really are quite capable of getting along on your own, and that was just kind of a, you know, they, they blew you off with uh, the idea that you really don't need us, you know. Uh, and also, I, I'd almost say that it was almost with a little warning, and that is uh, that, yeah, I could, but I'm not very good at it yet, meant that if you said, well, okay, but I really need a guide, so, uh, you know, go ahead, you know, they're liable to give you some uh, a red herring or something else just as a, as a little, you know, slap saying, you don't need this, you know, you, you can do it, take charge. So they might have told you something off the wall. But yet it's all, all of the above. Uh, typically, once you have a guide, what we call a guide, and, and I, I generally uh, just say that guides, you know, bubble up out of the larger consciousness system as you need them. Typically, when you have one that works, you tend to go back to that same one all the time. You make that same connection. So that interface with the larger consciousness system becomes your personal interface. And then it's not dealing with somebody new every time that you have to get to learn and learn their moods and their sense of humor and, uh, you know, the kind of things they might tell you or how they might tell you or that kind of thing. Because they have personalities as, as well. And you need to 
understand that personality in order to interpret what they're telling you. So I would I would think if it's your guide, it probably ought to be pretty steady. Um, you ought to be trying to connect with the same interface each time, and then uh, you won't likely get these things of uh, yeah I'm I'm out of here and uh, yeah maybe I could help you but mm, you know I'm not very good at it yet. You probably wouldn't get that sort of thing if it was the same guys you've been talking to a lot. But uh, yeah, all of all of the above. Uh, you know, the guide thing is available to you as you need it and can use it. And it's a it's a way of, for most people, it's a way of getting some confirmation that they're on the right track. You know, because you have to make your own choices anyway. If a guide says, oh, yeah, what you need to do is march off to the, you know, to a big cliff and jump over, you know, then you ignore that, right? You say, I don't think so. So you have to make your own decisions. If you get to the point that the guide is running your life and making your decisions for you, and some people get that. They get to the point that they can't, you know, uh, do anything without checking with their guides first to make sure it's okay. You know, people get that way. Then they have a dependency. Then they are giving up their free will to the guide, and that is not a good thing. And the guide is likely to tell them to go jump off a cliff or some other crazy thing just to just to give them the idea that you know, uh, you know, they need to make their own decisions. But you always have to make your own decision. A guide is there just as a, just as a guide, just as uh, you know, maybe get another viewpoint or a bigger picture on things. But you still have to decide: is that good advice or not? You know, do I want to do this? Because you're the one that pays the consequences. You know, as far as your own evolution goes, so you're the one that has to make the decision. Awesome. Thank you. That, that makes a lot of sense. I I feel like anytime I've tried to actively engage is usually when I get something back like that versus mm -hmm. when it's more uh, intuitive, I guess, or when it's just something in my mind, like, you know, I wonder what I should do about that. And I'm thinking about it. Then, you know, lo and behold, a phone call in a book and leads to something. And it's kind of more, more like gentle encouragement as opposed to direct interaction, which I know you've talked about a lot. And it, it just makes a lot of sense that that's how it really does happen. Yeah, most of the time your guides, well, I say much of the time, guides do not want to interact with you intellectually. Because if they do that, then they are interacting with your ego. The intellect, the average person who has an average amount of fear and belief and that sort of thing, their, their intellect is often driven by their, by their ego and by their fear. So an intellectual communication is one that is likely to get twisted up in the ego, in the ego response. So by dealing with you on a more subtle level, then they kind of bypass that and they get directly to you at the being level. Now, if your ego is, is uh, under control enough, they might want to discuss with you intellectually if they think that's a good idea. But they usually can do their business and do it more effectively if they're, if they're not dealing with you at an intellectual level, if they're dealing with, with you in some more subtle being level way. Also, you're not so likely to be second guessing and and uh, get twisted up over the conversation. If they if they interact with you intellectually, then if you have any fear or ego, your very first question is, was that some was that a guide or was that me? You know, and you start going through all of that stuff, which is just again, it's an ego issue. It's a fear that you might be wrong. It's a fear that you're talking to yourself instead of really to a guide and. 
and uh, they bypass all of that sort of thing by doing other things, by communicating with you uh, in ways that are nonverbal. As you said, the times that it's worked for you, it's been some kind of subtle communication that uh, gets the point across just the same, and it's more of an intuitive feeling of what the answer is rather than a, a linear intellectual feeling of what the answer is, and that's kind of typical for, for most guides. It's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, guides will speak to you and you can have conversations, and sometimes it's, it's just much like talking to each other now. You know, it comes in, in language and in sentences and uh, in words that you can hear. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, it's a telepathic, get the, get the heart of it, get the chunk of the message without the details of language sort of thing. And you're much better doing that through the intuition than you are trying to do that through the intellect. And then eventually, you learn to communicate telepathically to where you can communicate without the intellect, basically just trading ideas, concepts, feelings, and understandings back and forth in a conversation without language. Well, I guess the, the language is an intuitive language, that uh, not a spoken language anyway in the, in the PMR sense. I guess it's a language of its own type. That makes good sense, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. Let me look at the questions here. I've got to move screens. So the next one was by Adam, and I'll just read his question. It says, a friend of mine is having some difficulty conceiving a baby. There is certainly some complicated biology involved during the process that I'm aware of, sperm counts, ovulation cycles, etc. rule set issues. What is some advice you may have for women who are having difficulty conceiving from a My Big Toe perspective, as it involves bringing another consciousness into this reality frame? Therefore, creating different learning circumstances for everyone. Could it, be, could it be no matter how hard someone tries or lets go, it's just not in the cards for them to have children? Okay, there's a lot of different issues going on here. Um, one, probably the, the most likely, is that there is an anxiety attached to the getting pregnant. There's an there's a anxiety connected there. They, they really want to get pregnant. Or it could be an anxiety to the other side. They really don't want to get pregnant. But in any case, your body reads anxiety as there's a problem. This is not a good time. You know, this is uh, perhaps not, a, you know, not the best time to get pregnant and have a child if there's all this tension and, and uh, anxiety going on in your life now. Uh, so you can actually suppress, a female can suppress her fertility with her anxiety. And we have lots and lots of, of evidence for that when in couples who cannot conceive and they try and they try and they try and years go by, they finally give up and decide to adopt or something else. And as soon as they adopt and they have a little child, then she gets pregnant immediately after that. And what that means is she's finally relaxed. It's not the big issue. It's not, uh, I can't do this. What's wrong with me? You know, I'm, I'm inadequate. You know, well, my husband still loves me if I can't give him any children. You know, she has all the stress built up over it, and that's what's keeping her from actually getting pregnant, is that uh, the body doesn't want to deliver new babies into very stressful situations that are already very stressful, because a baby's stressful enough all by itself. 
much less to dump it into stress. And other animals have that same thing. Uh, farmers will tell you that if your if your livestock are very stressed, they stop having you know piglets or calves or whatever it is they they have. Um, conditions where they're being marauded by a predator or mistreated or other things, they stop reproducing. And it's it's a, a similar sort of thing. You don't, uh, the body says not a good time to bring new new life in if, if, uh, if the life that's there is having that much, you know, of a struggle getting by. And the baby would just uh, compound that struggle. So the, that's the highest probability. But there can always be other things. It's possible that it may just not be in the cards for that person to have children. That's unlikely, but it's possible. And perhaps they have, um, you know, just trying to make up a circumstance where that might, uh, where that might occur. And it could be that they, uh, say the mother got so uh, involved and so focused on the children that basically she loses her own, her own life and, and uh, you know, focus, and it's all about the children, all about the children, and not enough about the relationship she has with her husband or about, you know, other things that she should be paying attention. It's not about her growth anymore. Uh, it's just all around the children, and that focus may not be that she's just giving to the children, but it may be an escape, a fear from taking charge of her own life. You know, she doesn't want to have to take charge of her own life, uh, and therefore she... Uh, gets totally into the children so that she doesn't have to deal with other questions and other other growth factors. And she may have done that four or five uh, lifetimes in a row, so this time they decide to just take that escape away from her. You know, it's possible. Now, I'm just making this up, you know, trying to come up with a reason of why, you know, a woman may come here and uh, have a hard time or just not be in the cars to get pregnant. So there are possible reasons for that, but I say that's probably unlikely. You know, that's... Uh, that wouldn't be a typical case. More unlikely, it's the stress of wanting to get pregnant and wanting to know whether or not you are a, a full, you know, working female that can get pregnant and have babies and take care of them and be a good mother. And a lot of young girls have those kinds of, of stresses, anxieties, whether or not they, they can do all that. You know, particularly in our culture where people live out of their minds, we feel we have to control everything. And this biology, uh, of course, is outside our control. It just has to happen. And because we can't control it, it makes us more nervous, more fearful, because it's out of control. Well, what if I can't do it right? You know, that's a problem that uh, people have when they're no longer in control. They get uh, frightened. That, that used to show itself in a fear of flying. When, when flying was an early thing, you know, that uh, not very many people had ever been in an airplane there was lots of people who had a fear of flying, and the basic fear was of being out of control. You're 20,000 feet in the air, and there isn't a thing you can do to control anything that matters. You know, your life is totally in the hands of somebody else doing their job, and that uh, is scary. It was scary. It's not so much anymore because flying is just a part of life. Everybody flies around on airplanes, and we've learned to accept that uh, Without thinking about it, but in the early days of flying, the fear of flying was a was a uh, kind of a major uh, problem that they had to to deal with, it's because of the lack of control, and that's true of people in their biology, particularly women who are going to conceive and, and bear, 
and then uh, raise and you know nurture children. Am I going to be good at this? Will I be a good mother? And all of that stuff, all that anxiety then, because it's out of your control, tends to uh, prevent pregnancy from ever taking place. So that's the main thing. I say relax, you know, stop trying to do anything. Just uh, make your... Uh, Make your sexual encounters and your sexuality just a natural part of you. It's just what you want to do and when you want to do it and be totally into it without thinking of, am I going to get pregnant or not? Let all that go. And that will probably optimize your, your uh, possibilities of getting pregnant. The body itself, female body, is very uh, focused on getting pregnant. That's what it does. That's part of its thing that it does. And it's good at it if you don't get in the way, like most natural things. You know, you're really good at a lot of things if you can just keep your own mind out of the way. So that, that, would, be, uh, that would be my advice for, uh, for that young, uh, young couple or, or young lady. But it is possible that it's not in the cards, but unlikely. Unlikely. Usually it can, something can be done about it. Uh, you know, these days there's a lot of medical interventions that will that uh, can bypass that problem of getting pregnant too. I mean, it could be biology. It could be a particular biochemistry um, of, of her womb or, or uh, uterus or his sperm or something else, you know, maybe too acid, maybe too base, maybe this or that. Maybe there's some kind of biochemical issue going on and doctors can generally diagnose and cure that kind of a, that kind of a problem. Or maybe the egg doesn't uh, doesn't stick, you know. It just uh, it fertilizes, but never actually attaches itself to the uterus. That sometimes happens, but then they can they can implant it. So I'd say then just relax. There are ways around it, you know. Give it some time. So just to clarify, Tom, you're saying relax and make love. Yeah, yeah, everybody. <laughs> As often as possible, it's a very good thing. It's a uh, it's a natural part of us being human. Yeah. And the more stress we bring to that act, uh, you know, the less it actually does what it's supposed to do for us. You know, the more stress you bring to it, the more uh, the less it's just an open, fully joyful, you know, happy, wonderful, uh, giving moment. Then uh, you're not getting. Your body, your, your mind, and your body, your consciousness is not getting as much out of it as you should be if, you're, if you come to it stressed. Great. And I hope that, I guess Adam's not here. That was his question. So hopefully uh, that covered it good for him. Josh, did you want to uh, ask your question now? Sure. Um, my question's about IUOCs generating their own PMRs. Uh, is it common or inevitable for an MPMR IUOC, once it achieves sufficiently low entropy and quality of consciousness, to start generating its own PMR and run its own experiments? As a process fractal, this seems like it would happen a lot once a certain level of quality is reached, but I don't remember you ever mentioning this. Are there any specific benefits for a single MPMR IUOC to generate all the PMR personalities in a closed system versus having an open system with more than one IUOC participating? Okay. Um, first of all, I, I would say that uh, your question has a little bit of a human bias to it, and that is we tend to look at things as, as if, uh, well, 
you know, we have computers, and computers are automated. They just do what we tell them. They're kind of a, they're algorithm driven, and they do what they do because that's the way the algorithms make them do it. They don't make choices. They don't, they're not conscious. And then we have us, our consciousness, and of course we make, we make choices. And though we do also have a few algorithms there that are, that are running in the background, which we call our instincts. You know, we have a few hardwired things going on. Mostly we're very choice driven and we see that as two different kinds of functioning. There's the algorithmic, uh, the computer that does what's programmed. And then there's the, the uh, intelligence that uh, kind of figures things out as it goes. That's our view as a human. From the larger consciousness systems viewpoint, those two meld together into one thing. The larger consciousness system is an information system. It does compute, but it's also intelligent and it's conscious and it makes choices. So it does both of those. It's not, um, it's not one or the other. So I, I think this, this system, as it's as it's um, yeah, as it's evolving, it could evolve to where it is the sole decision maker, and it is making you know it's I shouldn't say the sole decision maker. All the IU IUOCs make decisions, but it could evolve to where it's kind of the fundamental in charge being right, and that all the subunits are subunits of its own. In other words, now we have a, a stair-stepped uh, causal line through all the possible um, worlds, all the possible universes, if you say. So you have the larger consciousness system, and it produce, produces our PMR. And inside our PMR, we produce computer simulations. And eventually, they become conscious. So now they're running in a, you know, in a Hewlett-Packard mainframe somewhere. And uh, then those characters in that Hewlett Packard mainframe, they get conscious, and then they run a another world uh, out of their own uh, mainframe, and so on. So you could have it serially like that, you know, one causing the next, causing the next, and then they all kind of work backward. Or, as you're suggesting, you could have it in parallel, so that um, uh, you have a larger consciousness system, and then as certain IUCs get to the point that they're able to uh, start off another uh, kind of series of reality frames, they do. So now you have the same thing happening, but instead of serially one generating the other generating the others, so now you have a bunch of them in parallel process. And all of these things um, could happen. They're all outside of our knowledge in the sense that that's what's going on. That's kind of the, uh, well, it's the outside. Well, it's not really outside our consciousness system. But it's outside of our, certainly our reality frame here. And it's something that I really wouldn't, I don't know whether it would be doing in parallel or in serial or none of the above. But I suspect, like anything evolving, you know, it does whatever it finds advantageous at the time. And thinking about it, I can see both possibilities. The one that you mentioned, kind of parallel processing of, of uh, other, other, uh, Kind of smaller subsets of the same thing as our as our uh, uh, larger consciousness system, but subsets of that started off from other high level IUOCs. I don't see any logical reason why both couldn't exist. Um, you know, in, in any case, everything that goes on would all be 
viewable and part of the largest larger consciousness system that would have started it all. So there would be a there would be a larger system. Now whether that's our LSC or whether that's ten levels back up from our you know larger consciousness system, that's impossible for us to tell because that would be an outside uh, outside our our larger consciousness system, and we just don't have any information there. So anyway, rather than end up with a, an infinite regress that there could be infinite numbers of these things, I would say, no, that's not the case. We have to start someplace, which is where I started in the books, where we start with a potential. And that's a potential uh, to realize that something is this way or that way, you know, and then let that potential create a larger consciousness system. And whether we sitting where we are in what we call the larger consciousness system is the original one or five or six levels down from, you know, in this hierarchy of, of one building the other serially or, or them spreading out in parallel, well, I have no idea. And I don't know that there's any way for us to, to know that. But it did start someplace. And uh, there's some good mathematics for how it starts. And that is... Um, one, we use cellular automata, which is basically a representation of a process fractal. Cellular automata are process fractals, just very, very simple ones. And if, if the listeners out there don't know about cellular automata, go look up uh, Game of Life. That was one of the first, and it's on the web, and there's lots of, you know, lots of examples. Actually, you can just uh, go to, to uh, you can Google it or or uh, go to Wikipedia and put in cellular automata and you'll get a lot of things on them. It's a very simple process fractal where you make a certain process, like you have white squares and black squares, and if a white square uh, gets next to two black squares, two or more black squares, it turns black, and if not, it stays white. And same for the black, and then you see how all the changing goes on. That that little process of it turns black if it's two or more, you know, if its neighbors are black, then that's a process. And you just iterate on that process, and then that process creates something, and that something evolves, it changes. And once it changes, the process now gets applied to the change, and that changes, and the process gets applied to that change, and so on. That's a process fractal. Whereas you just iterate on a process rather than a geometric fractal where you iterate, iterate on the uh, geometry, say a triangle on a triangle on a triangle. Um, in any case, that's, that's how it starts. So I don't uh, like to leave the, the uh, discussion with a, an infinite uh, digression of larger consciousness systems, but I think it starts someplace, and we just have an assumption that it has started someplace. And whether or not it's, it's a parallel and, and serial um, recreation of larger consciousness systems that then recreate their own virtual realities and so on as, as we go, Maybe, maybe not. I don't see any why, any reason why it couldn't, but evolution may or may not pick that path. I guess it just depends on which way produces uh, the lower entropy of the total system, which would be all of the parallel or all of the serial uh, systems. All together would make up the total big system. And if that was decreasing its entropy successfully, that's the way it would, that's the way it would go. So I really don't know, Josh, uh, whether that is actually happening, but I would agree with you. It certainly is possible. Uh, in order for it to, to be working, 
it would have to be a, a viable way to reduce entropy, more viable than, than say, the serial or, or just uh, having them all, all happening in just one larger consciousness system. And I don't know, maybe the computer science guy could work out the, uh, the various efficiencies in parallel serial or just one monolithic system and uh, see if, if there were any major advantages in, in efficiency one way or another, but I can't think of them. I'm not a computer scientist. So I don't see that any of those should be ruled out as, as not likely to happen, but it's one of those things we'll probably always have fun uh, thinking about, but never uh, feel like we've really got enough information to be too certain of. Thank you. All right, Spali, I guess I'm next. Um, I would like to ask about um, any recommendations on how to discover and overcome belief. For example, I more and more discovered that I really believe in your theory, even though I try not to. I try to see it in the, along the side of along the lines of uh, probability, but uh, I I tend to notice that uh, I may be believing too much and I don't want to. And the question is, how can we um, be, how can we learn about ourselves uh, most efficiently, uh, whether we believe something or whether we really see it just in terms of probability and how to deal with that if you have any recommendation? Um, yes. You know, many of us have a lot of beliefs that we don't even know we have. And, you know, you're, you're kind of an advanced case of struggling, you know, with, uh, with not believing in things that you, you know, you kind of tend to, to, uh, to believe in and you don't want to. It's a way we deal with, it's a way we tend to deal with reality. We want an answer. We want to know. And if we don't know, we make assumptions. And the catch comes when we start to believe our assumptions are true. And we kind of forget that they're just assumptions and we begin to act like our assumptions are actual fact. That's, that's where, the, you know, the, where the process goes wrong. So I would say what you should do is be aware of when you're making an assumption, when you don't really have all the answers. Where are you filling in for missing information? And then, instead of believing it, just leave it as probability. So it's, a, it's really a way of approaching life, Polly. Uh, it's, it's not so much a, that I can give you a real good process to follow. And it's just an attitude toward life in general. You have to realize that you don't know, you not only don't know everything, but that you don't really know very much. There's so much in our reality and so much in our relationships and so much in our environment that we just don't know and understand that if we kind of admit that to ourselves and we're okay with that, that doesn't drive us nuts, that doesn't make us feel insecure that we know so little, then we have to realize that, that we just need to give it a probability. Say, well, I think this is probably the way it is. I think, uh, you know, MBT has a good, has a good uh, uh, model there. But I'm not sure. I really don't know that much. I haven't had that much experience. So I'll give it a, you know, a 60% probability. 
and he'll just leave it there until I get more information, until I have more experience. Or maybe it'll never get any higher than 60%, or maybe my experience will take it the other way and it'll get down to 50% and maybe 40%, but it's open. It's always flexible to change kind of what, where I think it is. And, and if your tendency is to say, well, I almost always jump to the, to the conclusion that it's either 100% or zero, well, you see, that's taking you back to belief. So you have to resist that, that uh, need to want to know the answer, the final answer. You know, what is, what is the fact? And mostly we're driven to that by our fear of not knowing, our fear of being ignorant. We don't want to be ignorant. We want to have all the information because that way we can get it right. And we're afraid if, of not getting it right, of somehow... Uh, uh, kind of wandering down the you know the garden path that uh, really takes us nowhere useful, and we don't want to be we don't want to do that, but we have a fear that maybe we will do that, maybe we won't do it efficiently, effectively, we won't be be the right way, and it's that fear that keeps pushing us to come up with the answer because once we get the answer, then all that anxiety is gone. All right, MBT is the answer settled, you know, now that's it, I don't have to think about it anymore, I feel better, my anxiety's gone, but what you've just done is trap yourself into a model, you know, you, you've trapped your mind into the model that now is, if information comes up contrary to MBT, you won't back out, you won't turn the other way, you're kind of stuck there. So it's, that's kind of the dynamics of it. It's usually a fear of being wrong, a fear of wasting your time, a fear of uh, non-optimal process that wants you to know, and because of that, you tend to want to make it a belief. You want it to be a zero or a one as far as the probability goes, and having to live gracefully with uncertainty is what's required just to let it be a probability. And it's just, you have to approach life that way. So it's everything's like that. The next time you meet whomever, you know, maybe a friend you've known for 20 years, but the next time you meet them, it may be different. And instead of making it in your mind, expecting them to be a certain way, everything ought to always be open. It can, it's, it can be any way it, it is, and it won't necessarily be the same way that it has been. And if you're just open to that, and open to uh, uh, the fact that you don't know, and you might never find out in this lifetime. You may just struggle along, and that may not be so bad because the whole idea is to learn and grow, not to accumulate all the facts and understand everything. It's to, it's to grow up. So does that help you, Polly? Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Tom. I, the thing is I, I really have the impression that I made some progress in the last two years, and uh, I usually... Uh, go into things with the attitude of uh, a relaxed uh, expectation of uh, what will be that it will be and I will deal with it. I usually really feel it like that, but uh, at the same time I noticed, as, as I mentioned, this uh, I'd say desire to have things uh, according to the MBT uh, model because I like it, it makes sense, and uh, then I catch myself really falling into the belief trap of it must be like that but i really didn't experience it myself so how can i um let's say get deta detached from that attitude right so that that's a constant struggle 
not having too much information, too much experience, but at the same time having enough uh, to say, well, it looks very, very good. It looks like it's working. So that's that's my problem. I, it constantly goes to the direction of belief. Maybe I'm at I don't know 80% belief, uh, and I don't like that. I would like to, it to be less and more. Uh, let's say focus on how can I experience it. Yeah. Well, the more experience you have, the more you'll be able to set that probability where it seems right to you. You know, you may get to the point that it's 90, you know, then 95, then 99, then 99.99, and so on. But just don't ever go to to one. You know, don't go to a probability of one or 100%. Just uh, realize that it, you can always find something that is counter to that that may show you an error or a problem. And as long as you're open to finding an error, then you know it's not it's not a problem. Even if you're a 99.999% sure. If you're still open, if I get a, you know, I've had I've had a thousand experiences, and all one thousand of them say this is true. Well, you have to be open to the fact that it's still not true. You may have an experience that denies that, or is different, and you need to be aware of that so that when it, if it happens, you don't just blow it away and say, oh well, that didn't fit in. That must have been just a, you know, an, an anomaly that doesn't mean anything, and then you throw it away when it actually is a piece of data that's telling you. You know, there's a hole in the in the theory. So as long as you're open to something being counter to the theory, then you're fine. Don't worry about uh, where you are on the scale between you know zero and one as far as probability goes. Just as long as you're open to new information that might be contrary, that's the important thing. Yes, and uh, in that respect, also uh, this again partially from the Seth material. Uh, Seth was talking a lot about uh, beliefs uh, helping us also, not just, uh, let's say, chaining us to one conclusion, but also helping us along, uh, well, helping us to focus on some things. And I also tend to think about that because if I didn't uh, initially believe into something, I really wouldn't probably invest my time um, at a certain stage of development. So would you say that uh, beliefs may be a useful tool as, as, as similar to intellect uh, to a certain point? Well, with all those caveats to a certain point and so on, you know, makes it, uh, you know, I say, I'd say belief is not a good thing. Now, instead of saying I had to believe it in order to get started, you could have easily said, well, you don't have to believe it. I just had to see that there was maybe something to it. There was some value in it and if there's if I think there might be some value in it even if I'm not sure I'll pursue it and and see if that value is in there or how much value is in there and I'll you know I'll do that so I, I don't know that you need a belief to get started you just need to be open-minded to get started open-minded enough to see that something may have some credibility or or uh, value or open-minded to see that something uh, is counter to what You've, you've found to be valuable in the past. Just open-minded in general will take you where you want to go. You don't need a, a belief. If you're open-minded and you see something that uh, looks like it might be interesting, might have some value for you, then you go pursue it. And you pursue it to the point where you find out either it doesn't have that much value for you or 
you know, it, it has more. You pursue it more or less, and you don't you don't necessarily stay with everything you initially pursue. You ought to be uh, very open about it. So now I won't go to the point of saying that there are good beliefs, just like there are probably no no good fears, no good beliefs. But um, I'm sure somebody can come up with some very odd circumstance where belief is is a, is a good thing. You know, I won't say that that can't we can't logically come up with a with a very bizarre situation where a belief uh, is probably a good thing. Let's say somebody is, uh, um, you know, in a situation where they will die in a few minutes. There's a bullet heading toward them, and there's no way for them to escape. Well, is there any value in their knowing about it, or would it be better if they just had a belief for the next two seconds uh, that uh, everything's fine? You know, well, in that case, there's nothing they can do. There's no action they can take. There's absolutely no value in it. And there you could say, well, their their belief works just as well as not. You know, but that's a pretty bizarre situation. Yeah. So outside of those kinds of uh, uh, bizarre situations, I'd say the belief is not really part of the process. Now, does that mean that it can't be? No, you can have a belief, and the belief can get you started on something, and then you can find out how bad it is, and let that belief go and find something else. And you might say, well, I'd never have found that something else if I hadn't had that belief first that, uh, you know, moved me in that direction. Well, in that case, sure. You know, we, we get to where we are now through all kinds of circumstances, things that we've done, places we've gone, places we've liked, places we've disliked. And here we are today, right here, talking to each other because of all that stuff that happened to us in the past. And you might say, well, I like it where I am right now, so I wouldn't change any of it. Well, that's good. So then all that stuff that happened to you, you can look at and say, well, that was all good because it led me to where I am now. So in that sense, you know, doing things that aren't, aren't good could be termed good if they eventually get you to a place that's better. You know, when I was in, you know, you'd say, like when I was whatever, you know, in jail or in rehab or something uh, because I was a drug addict or I was a criminal, I met somebody who changed my life and I never would have met them if I hadn't been in prison. I've done that bad thing. So in that way, uh, yes, you can justify everything. But in general, as it stands on its own, there's no good fear and there's there's really no good no good belief. But open open mindedness should serve you much better than uh, needing belief to get you motivated. Open mindedness should get you motivated enough. Yes, I agree completely. I think the problem is uh, for me and maybe for other people. To discern uh, what is really uh, my intention of my, I mean, I think I did start with a belief uh, into uh, what MBT is saying without really knowing, and uh, maybe uh, you would say it was open-minded. Therefore, it wasn't really a belief. It wasn't a one, but uh, for me, uh, I cannot really make that. Uh, assumption I just feel it was a belief otherwise I wouldn't have moved that's that's probably the issue for me well you know what you're calling a belief there maybe not so much a belief it's just your intuition you know some people will uh, read MBT and they just feel like it immediately resonates with them as they read it uh, it just resonates with their experience it just feels right and they're not sure why if you made them explain it, they probably wouldn't do a very good job. They can't intellectually justify it. They just know it felt right. Yeah, this sounds like the truth. 
why I don't know, you know, I don't have any experience, but it just sounds right, I resonate with it. That's not necessarily saying that it's a belief, it's just that it's that that's a belief of theirs. It's just uh, they're resonating with it. Their intuition is saying, yes, go pursue that. This seems like something that's good to pursue. So I wouldn't put that in the same category as belief. That's a kind of a, a, a resonance with your intuition. And many of us get snagged with that. You know, as we started down this path, our intuition kind of urged us on because it just felt right, like it would be a very uh, good vein for us to mine. And we pay attention to that intuition. Most of us have learned to pay attention to those kinds of intuitions. And sometimes your intuition will tell you that it's time to run, you know, it's time to cut and run, get out of here, you know, while the getting's good. And you usually pay attention to that intuition as well. And I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't categorize either of those as beliefs. They're just uh, kind of us getting in touch with ourselves at the being level and what does our being level feel about this. Well, that makes me feel much better about myself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, no, really, because uh, uh, I thought about myself as detached from my intuition, and uh, maybe that's the reason why I just uh, used the word uh, belief at at the time when I was starting. So I think that that really makes sense. I didn't come uh, up with such a good answer. Um, one more uh, question. Uh, it is about um, those uh, sticky or pesky melodies uh, that sometimes catch me, and I really cannot get rid of them. Um, I, I thought about uh, their purpose in general. I know it may be um, the untrained mind, uh, which in this way signalizes that we may want to, tr to do about something about it. And at the same time, I also uh, thought about uh, an alternative where these melodies actually uh, they they signifies a certain mood or a certain certain attitude. And uh, maybe if I'm not listening to myself enough, uh, then such a melody would be a good thing uh, to let me know that uh, there is something going on. What's your view on uh, these occurrences, if you know what I mean, and uh, would you recommend getting rid of them, and how? Um, I don't think they're probably very important things in, in any case, but where do they come from? Probably you have an experience. You talk about tunes, little melodies that get stuck in your head that uh, just keep coming back and coming back, and sometimes uh, yeah, you feel like they're just trapped there. They, they don't go away. They come back even when you just assume not hear them. But I think sometime or another you've related to that too. You heard that melody and that melody either was very positive for you, something you liked, which means you got a little bit of oxytocin uh, in your system and it felt good, um, or uh, it had some other kind of an emotional connection for you. Music often connects with us at an emotional level. So if you had some resonance with a particular sound or, or uh, event, could be an event, could be an odor. Sometimes people have them with, uh, with events, visual things and odors as well as with melodies that um, kind of keep coming back to you. One, that's probably something pleasant and you're just re rerunning it, your memory. Uh, two, it could be something that's emotional and your memory reruns it, or it could be something that's unpleasant that you can't let go of, 
and uh, you're rerunning it. But all in all, and I wouldn't, unless it's really obtrusive and it really bothers you, I don't know that I'd pay much attention to it. And probably if it does bother you, it's because you do pay attention to it. In other words, if you can get your ego wrapped around it to where you hear it and you say, ah, where's that thing coming from? I need to get that out of my head. And the more obsessed you with of getting rid of it, you know, the more obsessed you are of getting rid of it, the more difficult it will be to get rid of because your, your, your need and want to get rid of it will reinforce it and you'll be putting energy into it. So I can see that some people would get in a vicious, a vicious cycle with something like that and they'd get to where they were very much wanted to get rid of it and that angst and anxiety is what is driving it and then they're just in a loop. They need to go relax. You know, they need to just let that go and live gracefully with it and it'll probably go away on its own. They're the ones creating the obsession with it. It's not attacking them. They are basically creating it. So I don't think there's a there's a, a real, uh, well, I don't know. From my experience, it's never really been a, 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 a major thing. I can see maybe the system could use a, uh, something that had an emotional connection, let's say something that upsets you, and that wouldn't be a melody. That would be something where you're constantly coming back and replaying something that didn't go well for you, something that upsets you. Well, that replaying may be just to get you to deal with it rather than not dealing with it. And the reason it keeps coming back to you is because you've never dealt with it. And it's giving you another opportunity and another opportunity and another opportunity to deal with it. That's why it's coming back. But for little songs and little melodies and things, just uh, maybe your body just wants that another hit of oxytocin it got when it liked it the first time. You know, it's hard to say why those things happen. I know sometimes if you work on something very, very hard, uh, you will end up doing that same thing in your dreams the next night. Like, let's say you, you spend 16 hours in a row licking envelopes and mailing Christmas cards, and you just lick, you know, 500 envelopes and stamps and, and uh, do this, and you do it hour after hour after hour to finally get the deadline so you get them out, you know, before Christmas Eve, and you go to bed that night, and all night long you're licking envelopes, you know, and stuffing cards. Well, that's just because you spent so much focus on it, it just replays. Of course, in a day or two, you'll stop licking envelopes in your sleep and you'll let it go. But those kinds of things, when you get something that is kind of uh, really makes an impression on you, sometimes you'll just replay it just because it's, it's there. Your nerve endings are so used to that neural pathway that they just uh, do that. But you're right, it does show that you're not focused, because if you were focused doing something else, that shouldn't be there. That would show that, uh, you know, if you're focused doing your job or doing a meditation or doing something else and your mind is running melodies and, and things you liked or disliked, then your focus is not very good. Then I would say in that case, you need to learn to focus better. Thank you very much.